This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Great to have you with me as we start November 2016. And it's a special month for this podcast as presaged last week. This I declare as Entrepreneur Month here at Rule Breaker Investing. So, my aim throughout the next few weeks of podcasts is to feature some entrepreneurs. Uh, we have always heard among our membership base when we go to member events and book signings, we over index toward small business people, people who are entrepreneurs who have their own businesses. A lot of you, as it turns out, also are stock market investors and buy and use our services. So, there's always, beyond just the stock market talk here at The Motley Fool, there's always a second undercurrent of talk about another subject we love, which is business and entrepreneurship. And so, my focus this month is to bring in some of these talented entrepreneurs, people you may not have heard of before, or you may have, and they're going to help you and me get better at business. And I would say not just at business, but at life, ideally, because these are people with good perspectives on the world at large. And yes, they are entrepreneurs, they are successful unto themselves, but they, and I'm going to say at least I, am certainly interested in helping other entrepreneurs. That's the nature of their businesses and what we're doing this month at Rule Breaker Investing. So, first up, I brought in one of my favorite newer game designers and a successful entrepreneur, as you will hear, the reflective, intelligent, and fun to talk to, Jamie Stegmeier. Jamie Stegmeier is the co-founder of Stonemeyer Games. They've created such memorable, beautiful, and fun games, fun games that I own and enjoy, like Viticulture, uh, Tuscany, Euphoria, Scythe, and more. And they do it by engaging supporters on the crowdfunding site Kickstarter. Jamie's passion for crowdfunding led him to write a crowdfunder's strategy guide. He joins me today on the phone from St. Louis to talk about crowdfunding, entrepreneurship, and how he came to be named the king of Kickstarter. Jamie Stegmeier, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Hey, David. Thank you so much for having me. Really fun to have you, and I've been a fan. Um, I've mentioned to you earlier that I own a few of your games. They're wonderful games. I, I talk as as uh, rule breaker investing listeners know, I talk probably too much about games um, here and there uh, through the months. But um, in particular, I found Viticulture first. I know you've done work before that, but just a beautiful game, so thematic, um, making you feel like you are in fact uh, picking the grapes and smashing them and bottling them up and then selling them for points and competing against um, friends and welcoming in visitors in the summer and winter and just a huge amount of thematic material that you expanded beautifully with your Tuscany game, which kind of almost added a legacy element, similar to the conversation we had with Rob Davio a few months ago in this podcast. So, anyway, enough gushing. Um, let me start by asking you, maybe it's the superhero origin story question. Jamie, where did you come from? I grew up in Virginia. I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and that's where I was Ah, great Louis. school. And uh, I guess uh, the, the, the origin of my, my, my current business and my, my current company is that I, I've loved board games for most of my life. I've loved designing games and playing games. And uh, I've also really been fascinated by Kickstarter in particular um, since it, it became a thing in uh, 2009. Mm. And so I started to see um, other companies 
launch board games on Kickstarter and companies and individuals. And I kind of thought, you know, this game design hobby of mine that I've had my whole life, why not give it a shot on Kickstarter? It's, it's fairly low risk if, if you if you you know budget correctly, and um, I'll give it a try. So I, I, I tried it out with Viticulture and was successful, and that that kind of launched the rest of my company. Yeah, and Scythe, um, if Wikipedia is correct, and we all know it's always correct, Scythe, <laughs> Scythe is listed as, you had a target of raising $33,000, which sounds like a modest ask, by the way, but $33,000 you raised, and this is last year, around this time last year, $1.8 million for your board game, uh, which is a remarkable, is that, and is that a true statistic? That's right, yeah, yeah, just uh, almost exactly a year ago today, um, Yes, I've ended up raising them twenty-eight million. Yeah, mm. and it's yeah. Okay, good. And I want to take these two separate elements, gaming and Kickstarter. I want to keep them separate for a sec. So I want to go to games just a little bit. Jamie, what are some games that you love and admire that you haven't designed? What were you raised on? Uh, what's gaming greatness for you? I was raised on. Well, I was raised on some games that I no longer play, but I really appreciate <laughs> um, their, their games. You know, classic games like Monopoly and sorry games like that, but also some games that actually maybe really think um like there's a game called labyrinth labyrinth that i love mm-hmm. there's a game called scotland yard mm-hmm. um millborn was a little card game my parents the racing uh, had, game yeah 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 so those are some of the games i played growing up right now a few of my favorite games um two of my i guess i'll, I'll name my top two are a game called uh, castles of mad king ludwig have you played that game i have yes indeed and it, it's yeah. It's a again a very thematic game. You are you're you're you're, you're building it up, right? You're building up yeah. something that looks a lot like what uh, these days, I guess Dim- Disney has done the best job emulating Mad King Ludwig's castle in in Austria, right? right. Or in Germany, I mean, exactly. sorry, Bavaria. Yeah, yeah. He was kind of this uh, known as a, a Mad King, so he built all these crazy castles, some of which were finished, some of which weren't, and you kind of have that experience playing the game. Uh, I, I love that. And then there's a game called Isle of Sky, um, which is it has similar elements to it. There's an auction element to it. There's you're also building something, and I I really really love Isle of Sky as well. And I do too. One? In fact, I was yeah. inspired. Um, I I went to Sky this summer. <laughs> so I was definitely oh, played wow. some. Yeah, Alexander Pfister, who's really oncoming, seems like a pretty hot game designer. I'm assuming he's German, P F I S T E R, but. Right. Uh, I may have that wrong, but yes, that's a that is a delightful game, and both are very accessible games. What you've described, in fact, your your games, I think, tend to run a little bit more complex, a little bit more um, brass, and I would even say maybe an extra page of rules or two versus those two games, which all of which I enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that, that's a good assessment of those those games. Yeah. So, do you spend a lot of time playing games? Do you try to play a game every day or every week, or are you designing most of the time? You know, I, I've learned so much about my game designs by playing a wide variety of other games, and it is also my main social outlet. Cause I just, I, I, I love playing games. Um, so yeah, I, I host a weekly game night every Wednesday, and then uh, we often play games on Saturday. And sometimes we'll get together for uh, just a random game. Otherwise, other times in the week. Right now, we're playing a. a, a you mentioned the legacy games, and Rob Dabio, we're playing his new game, Seafall, every Monday. Yes. Um, for the next uh, few months. Wonderful. So, an, an active gaming life. And that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because somebody that I've gotten to know over the years, Reiner Knizia, the esteemed uh, German designer, 
makes a real point of trying not to play anybody else's games. I think Reiner's always felt like he doesn't want to be accused of borrowing or swiping, and he's always tried to, you know, think fairly originally. I think he's he's idiosyncratic in that regard. I think most people that I know who design games love playing lots of games, and no doubt learn a lot from uh, their peers. Yeah, I'm definitely in that boat, and and not just I found not just playing games that. Um, are in my design wheelhouse, like Euro economic games, but also games that I wouldn't normally be drawn to. I, I, I found a, I've learned a lot from them, like like party games, like Telestrations or, or um, deck building games, things that things that aren't games that I would design. I, I just learned so much from playing them. Um, so yeah, I think I would I, I would be at a loss if I wasn't if I wasn't playing games from other designers. Mm-hmm. And so now, now, I, and I realize for some Rule Breaker members, they're hearing names of games, and Jamie and I are speaking glibly about things that we know <laughs> together. But much of the world does not know these games. Jamie, if I am somebody who is interested by what I'm hearing you say, and I want to maybe pick up one of those games, could you make a recommendation or two? And can I find it on Amazon? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, some maybe gateway games that people could uh, get into for the first time. Um, well, I, I mentioned Telestrations, which is a wonderful party game um, that that uh, in, involves players kind of uh, drawing a picture on on a, a whiteboard. Everyone has their own little whiteboard, and then you pass the whiteboard to the next player, and they write um, they write down what they think you drew, and then they pass it again to the next person, <laughs> and they draw something. So it's this silly party game, but it's it's a lot of fun. And it what I love about it is uh, a lot of I'm an introvert, and I don't like the spotlight on me. And so a lot of party games really put the spotlight on you and, and require you to be funny on the spot, and that's not something I enjoy. But Telestrations, no, the spotlight isn't on anybody. You're, you're kind of privately drawing these pictures, and at the end you show everyone um, the result, which I really, really love. That game is very accessible, and people could find that in, in Target or Barnes & Noble or on, on Amazon. Yes, indeed. And then other games like Ticket to Ride, or certainly for decades now, Settlers of Catan, also games that if you're new to this kind of conversation are games that you might find um, pretty easy to pick up, learn, and enjoy with your family. All right, let's move on now to Kickstarter. And I realize before I go on, Jamie, I really am taking something for granted, which is that I'm assuming everyone knows what Kickstarter is, but clearly everybody does not know what Kickstarter is. So, could, could you just, in a minute or so, Re-explain for anybody who doesn't know what crowdfunding is, what that is, but in particular, if you're willing to share, I'm curious, what is the business model? How do, what cut does Kickstarter take, or how does that work for you, the entrepreneur? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the basic gist of Kickstarter is that it is a reward-based crowdfunding platform. And what that means is that um, anyone who has uh, either an idea or something that they fully developed and want to gauge demand for or raise money for or build community for, they can create a project on Kickstarter uh, to create that thing. Uh, They select a funding goal and they create reward levels, which often include one of the things that they're making. Like for me, I make board games, so the reward levels include are are often just board games. Mm -hmm. And if if I reach my funding goal, so you mentioned the funding goal for side was 33,000, if I reach that goal during a set period of time, um, that everyone's credit cards are charged, I receive that money, and I have to make that thing and, and deliver it to everybody. Um, Kickstarter for this service, for pro- providing this platform, they charge a 5% service fee. And in addition to that, there's a 3 to 5% um, Stripe credit card processing fee. Okay. 
And has that always been the case, by the way, since you've done Kickstarters now for four-plus years? Has their model changed? Have they changed? Yeah, Kickstarter has been um, very deliberate and intentional in their changes. And so if you looked at the Kickstarter site four or five years ago, it would look very similar to what it looks today, except you would see today, you would see a lot more polished projects. People have gotten really, really good at creating these beautiful polished project pages and and writing really good copy um, because there's a lot more competition. There are a lot more projects on it. But the uh, the financial side of it itself is almost identical, with the only exception being that they used to use Amazon payments, and now they use uh, Stripe instead. Uh, Jamie, you have had a lot of success. When did you... You mentioned... it debuted in 2009. Uh, when did you first do your first Kickstarter? My first Kickstarter was actually not gaming-related. It was uh, I was working on a small um, uh, fiction book publishing company here in St. Louis, just a little side project, and I ran a Kickstarter for that in, uh, I believe, 2011, summer of 2011. And it raised, uh, you know, you compare numbers here. My, my last project raised $1.8 million. Um, this project raised three hundred and five dollars. That first one. <laughs> and what did you learn from it? I learned. Well, yeah, I, I made some big mistakes in that project. One of the big ones I made is that I focused a lot on trying to get Kickstarter's attention. So I tried to do some gimmicky things, um, like that. The, there was this weird pricing model that I used. I had a very silly video. Um, that was kind of based on the movie Sideways. <laughs> oh no, that was actually Viticulture. This, this was a more serious video. That was that was right. It was Viticulture. But actually, with both of those things, I was trying to get Kickstarter's attention, thinking that Kickstarter success was related to getting their attention and getting featured by Kickstarter. And I really learned from that and from other projects that I've done in the future that that is not the key at all. The, the, you know, there are many other things that are way more important than having Kickstarter notice you. Trying to get on the main page, so to speak. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so so from $305, you learned a few lessons. What was your next project? My next project was the first board game project. That was Viticulture in, uh, in the fall of 2012. Um, that, one, that one was a very different experience. I went into it really, really focused on it. I still did that one. I did the sideways gimmicky video, hoping to right. get Kickstarter's attention. Yep. But for the most part, um, I, I really tried to focus all of my time and energy on letting my, my backers know how much I appreciated uh, their, their support. Because I started off by sending individual emails and letters to everyone in my family, friends and family, to get them to support it. And many of them did, fortunately. But then strangers started showing up, which was also great. And I, I individually emailed every one of those strangers to thank them for their their uh, their pledge and to, to try to connect with them and start to build relationships with all these different people. And I think that definitely translated into the project raising $65,000. $65,000 for Viticulture. Yeah. So in order of magnitude, three hundred five to sixty-five k, and we're obviously headed toward last fall's one point eight million. So a couple more orders of magnitude from there. But I want to ask you a little bit about um, at that stage. When did you start writing? You have a blog, or you've written a blog, Kickstarter Lessons. When did you start that blog? Well, after the Viticulture project ended, I was uh, I was using my company blog, the StoneMeyerGames.com blog. I was using that to um, to kind of continue to talk about the game, to talk about viticulture. I was reviewing cards and, and art and things like that. Um, but I got to the point, I was like, you know what, am I really adding any value to people by doing this? Like, what, what, Why would someone read this? What, what would they get out of it? 
And I also thought back to before I started, before I launched Viticulture, and there were really, I could not find any resources that really taught someone how to run a successful Kickstarter um, and, and, you know, pitfalls to avoid things like that. And so it's like, you know, I've done that. I've been there. I've made plenty of mistakes in these two projects that I've run. I'll write about it. And so it was in, I think, December of 2012 that I just started writing these Kickstarter lessons based on things that I had learned while running my projects. Um, many of them I had learned the hard way in the hopes that someone else could read them and not have to learn the hard way either. And I wasn't following you back then. I know uh, we've talked about it, and I would definitely want to make sure I plug it here, your book. Um, and let me just call up, because uh, it's it's one of those books where, like a lot of business books, in the subtitle, uh, we, we see what's underneath the hood. So it's a crowdfunder strategy guide, and then your subtitle, Build a Better Business, by building community. Now, it's funny from a Motley Fool standpoint, it sounds a lot like how we think about business. Guy would say something like, "Build a better financial digital media company by building community." So, it you really clearly started to turn it from doing gimmicky stuff, I guess, yourself hoping to get people's attention, and really by building community. At, it, it, did that emerge after reflecting on Viticulture prior to your next project, or when did that really start to form in your mind? I would say there was actually a moment when I pressed the launch button on the Kickstarter campaign, or maybe a few minutes after that, that um, that it really hit me that the project wasn't about me. It wasn't about people backing this thing to support me or to support this thing that I was passionate about. It was about me making something awesome for all these people who were supporting it, these friends and family and these strangers. And so it was more like this big directional focus where the – the spotlight shifted for me to to all these people, and once I really, you know, I recognized that, but I, and I I've embraced it more and more over time. Um, this outward focus on people and relationships and community, mm. um, rather than on on my dream or my passion. If you've tried to get a mortgage, you know how frustrating the process is and how you seem to spend hours and hours on paperwork. Well, Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. It's a quick online process that you can manage right from your couch. So, if you're looking to Finance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states, NMLS consumeraccess.org number 3030. All right, so Jamie, you, you do viticulture, 65,000. Um, I, I think I had this right that coming after that, you did an expansion for viticulture, Tuscany. Uh, yeah, I did. There was a project in between. I did Euphoria. Uh, after Viticulture, um, and then Tuscany was the one after that. Okay, and how much did those each raise, respectively? Euphoria raised just over $300,000. That was in the summer, of the, uh, June of 2013. Mm-hmm. And then about eight months later, uh, Tuscany raised, I think it was about $450,000. Um, so the, we, were, we were still seeing growth on Kickstarter through those projects. Um, and I was also, uh, off of Kickstarter, I was seeing... A different kind of growth because I was learning a lot more about the distribution model in the board game business and how to how to continually sell games to uh, distributors and retailers and individuals without always having the pomp and circumstance of a, of a Kickstarter. Mm. 
just truly remarkable growth, getting a 10x from where you'd just been a year or two before. And as I've already foreshadowed, you were about to go 4 or 5x on top of that with your project last year. Now, the truth is, I could talk with you another couple hours about this, because I'm fascinated by it, but I feel some compulsion to rein myself in and drive forward to maybe a couple short lists. And what I'd love for you, Jamie, if you thought about this summer, I know you can think on your feet if you haven't, um, to provide some insights um, for I want to do two lists. So a few insights for people who want to succeed on Kickstarter. I can't imagine a better person to talk to about that. So I want to ask you about that. And then I want to ask beyond that, lessons for entrepreneurs more broadly, maybe based on things that you've learned on Kickstarter. Or, or admittedly, I'm very Kickstarter focused here. I know you have a business, you have your own company. There are a lot of lessons beyond that that I'd like to touch on there. So let me let me go first to the let's go with something like Four Ways to Succeed on Kickstarter by Jamie Stegmeyer. Okay, four ways. Um, the first is I would suggest right now, if someone listening to this who is even remotely intrigued by the idea of running a project, I would highly recommend that they go to Kickstarter and pledge to support five to ten projects. Um, this is not to benefit Kickstarter, rather, this is to benefit you so that you can learn um, by watching other, other creators run their projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can back for just a dollar, so it doesn't have to be about the money, it doesn't have to be about the reward, but there's just so much that you can learn from following another project, um, opposed to just looking on Kickstarter at all the projects. Such a great one to lead off with. I love it. What's number two? Number two is to start talking about whatever you want to make. Um, and by that, I mean start creating content around the thing that you're going to make, whether it's a podcast like we're, we're doing right now, or, or a blog, or a YouTube video channel. There's just so much you can learn, I think, by creating that content um, for multiple reasons. One of them being that you're building a crowd, you're building a fan base or crowd or people, a way to people to find you and find the thing that you're making, um, which will be really, really important if you end up do, launching something on Kickstarter. And also, it helps you, I found, that it, uh, creating that type of content um, helps you start thinking outside of yourself. Mm. It, Tells you look outward, outward facing other people to see what is interesting to them. Like, what are the things that I'm saying that are engaging other people, and what are the things I'm saying that really don't engage people at all? And and honing that process over time. Wonderful, uh, yeah. Prototyping. I mean, or just uh, let me ask you this. I know you started a blog. Do you do a podcast? Or there are a few different tools. The internet has really democratized reaching out and finding your own community, building your own community. What is your preferred tool or approach there? Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll make this number three because this is a big one. Um, my my recommendation would be if if you do have some concept in mind about what you're looking to create, um, even if it's a broad category like like board games, you don't know what type of board games you're going to make, but you you want to make a board game and put it on Kickstarter. Um, the the key I think is finding the existing audiences of people who love to talk about that topic, that category, who share your passion for it. And going to those communities and joining them, um, just being a part of those communities online in a non-self-promotional way, just in a, I want to share my passion with these people, I want to talk about the same thing they're talking about. And that way, I don't know, there, there's just so much value in, in joining those communities before you need those communities to do something for you. I hear you, and I'm I, as as a I'm assuming I'm going to say as a fellow enophile, I'm assuming that you like wine. But I'm curious what that looked like for your creation of viticulture. Were you I don't know hanging out, hanging out in Tuscany? 
I wish I would take an antidepressant. Yeah, um, I, I did not do that. Um, and actually, one key thing that I learned with with that project is uh, targeting the right people. Uh, so I, I when I launched Kickstarter, when I launched Viticulture on Kickstarter, I um, had to choose between dividing my time between people who love board games and people who love wine. <laughs> there are very different places on the internet and and in real life where you can find those audiences. Um, and what I found, especially in, the, in a poll I ran after the campaign, was that the biggest group of people were people who love board games and happen to like wine. Um, there was also a big group of board game lovers, but the smallest group by far were people who just liked wine and were <laughs> willing to try out board games for the first time. So I kind of learned a little bit about tar- targeting audiences there, which, which audience may be more effective to target. Tremendous. What's number four? Number four is, and I'm sure you guys at The Motley Fool can relate to this, uh, is, is to budget, and budget really, really well. Earlier in this podcast, I mentioned that there's very low risk in Kickstarter, but the one big risk is if you have a successful project and you didn't budget well, which means that everyone's credit cards got charged, you are responsible for delivering rewards, and so you better have a great budget. Um, the 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 most like there are very few Kickstarter projects that have really really uh, disastrously failed, and all of them have been related to poor budgeting. Mm. So I highly recommend that people budget for three different circumstances: one, that they don't fund; two, that they barely fund. You, you know, you set that goal hoping to make a lot more, but really you just barely reach it. And three, if you wildly overfund, um, and that's the one that's the scariest one because you, if you have a million dollars in your bank account. Um, you have a lot of responsibility to your backers. Yeah, and actually, before we go to our close, which will be more broadly a few lessons for entrepreneurs, I'm curious, uh, your beautiful game Scythe, which did, of course, later then come out here in 2016 to rave reviews, um, lot, lots more Stonemeyer game fans uh, driven by Scythe, and Scythe, which raised for a board game almost $2 million in I know it can go even bigger. Um, I, I've not played it. I'm not particularly interested in it. But there's a card game I'm sure you've heard of called Exploding Kittens, which I believe has raised something like eight million dollars on Kickstarter. And I'm pretty sure. I mean, Scythe is lavishly produced, and so budgeting and having the beautiful components you do is important. What happens when things get far more money than they actually need? And have you ever felt that? Well. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I, I think there are a few different sides to that. The the, the like you said, you mentioned the word need, a project that makes more money than it needs, um, and, and part of that for a creator is a blessing because it says uh, you, that there's a lot of demand for something, and you actually have the money now to to meet that demand mm-hmm. up front in the first print run or the first the first manufacturing run of it. Um, so that's a blessing. The 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 backside though is if you were planning to say hand ship uh, maybe a hundred copies of of your product, but you ra- but a lot more people wanted it than you thought, and you now need to ship three thousand copies, that really changes that fulfillment process. Mm. Um, and so, being prepared for that is really key. I never fulfill anything by hand uh, just because it's it's. That's not how I want to spend my time, um, and there are fulfillment centers that do it much more cost-effectively than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, that's why you kind of got. I, I recommend to people that they plan for those those really low um, estimates, and then the the wildly overfunding, over successful 
projects as well. Mm. Yeah, and and I know, and as we transition then to a few lessons for entrepreneurs, I know one thing since I have been kickstarting your games, you meticulously through every stage. In this case of production and shipping, you meticulously work with the producers and the shippers. I feel like you are my guy. You've got my back. You're there, you know, saying no, that's not good enough in some cases and sometimes that introduces a little delay, which can happen a lot on Kickstarter. I don't think you've been bedeviled by that too much, but um so maybe that maybe that transitions us into what we can learn as entrepreneurs from some of your success. Um, sure. Forget about Kickstarter for a sec. Give me, give me maybe let's say three things that work in any business. Three things that work in any business. Um, well, so one thing that I do in my business that I think has made us pretty successful is I have. I guess we were talking earlier about um, the community aspect of the Molly Fool and, and Stillmeyer Games. At Stillmeyer Games, I have a group of people called our, our ambassadors. It's our ambassador program. Mm-hmm. And they're basically like formalized fans of what we do, fans to the point where they, they don't just want like the inside information, but they also want to actively share what we do with other people. And from a business mindset, this is essentially free marketing. These are people who, are, who I'm not paying, who are out in the world talking about my games, which is wonderful. Mm. Um, but uh, from a more relational standpoint, it's just it, these, are, these are people who are just so passionate about what we do, and I, I, I get to connect with them on a whole new level than, than just the average person who buys our games. And it's, it's become a huge part of the way that we spread the word and, and, and kind of welcome people into our games and the gaming community in general. So I found that to be hugely invaluable for us. I'm curious, have you ever heard of the book Raving Fans by Ken Blanchard? No, no, but I'm going to drop that down. Raving fans? Yeah, because it, it, it sounds very much like what you've just described. Of course, a lot of these lessons that you're teaching us are truisms and have worked through the centuries, no doubt, because in the end, a lot of them are about human character and life. They're not so much about being an entrepreneur per se. But yeah, Ken Blanchard wrote kind of maybe sort of an iconic book. This is, this is not a recent one. Um, I'm going to say this. Well, why do I need to say when I've got the internet? Uh, this book was published in 1993. So it's uh, 25 years old or so, uh, but it, it's yeah, it's it's about about how important it is. Uh, he he really emphasizes customer service and just creating raving fans for what you're doing. And you're describing yeah. really taking it one step further and organizing them into a community and making them ambassadors. Uh, and right. and that's something almost any business can can aspire to do and can in fact uh, even ju- if you just call it the blase term marketing, uh, it's a great uh-huh. form of marketing that anybody can. Anybody can um, can do, I think. That's right. I appreciate the recommendation. I'll check that out. Sure. What's number two? Number two, and it's, it, David, it is hard for me to separate these from Kickstarters because it's so much, <laughs> much a big part of my business. But uh, I guess almost to bridge the gap, um, because I'm, I'm I'm moving my company more and more away from Kickstarter and away from pre-orders, and it's a big part of that for me has been recognizing has been time management basically and looking back and recognizing how I'm spending my time and how I want to spend my time. And so with a Kickstarter project, I spend like a month preparing for it, a very intense month running it, another month afterward uh, gathering all the data and and wrapping things up. And then the fulfillment center process, you know, five or six months later is also very, very time intensive. And so um, while I love the relationships and some of the other things that are formed and, and driven by Kickstarter, um, I've, I've kind of I'm learning more about uh, 
more about managing that time and, and how I want to spend it. And if I'd maybe rather spend uh, five or six fairly stressful months mm. um, engaging people in a different way and making more games and, and playing more games, uh, and that's kind of been a, an interesting way for me to reflect on the company. So I'm, I'm curious, I don't know, do you do that? Do you look back at, at the way that you spend your time and if, if, you, if you're spending it the right way? It's a really good question. I mean, obviously, I think all of us need some period of high energy and then relaxation. Um, some people call yeah. it things like decompress, which usually, <laughs> to me, suggests that they were kind of stressed out by what they were doing. I sense that you and I maybe share a love of what we're doing for the most part. Yeah. So I know, unfortunately, some people do not enjoy their professional calling. But yeah, I think that, well, for me, um, and this isn't about me, but for me, I, I make a real point of being in the office about half the time and then being at home and doing my real work, like picking stocks and answering emails and all the rest. And so I, I have a really nice balance, I think, between office life and home life in a way that I don't feel like I need some big vacation at the end of the year to, to get back to even. So um, right. maybe a, a right. personal reflection a little bit. Yeah, I think for me, part of the result of that that thought process has been, I can sell you know ten thousand games to ten thousand individuals on Kickstarter, or I can sell ten thousand games to ten distributors, and have them handle everything else. Mm. And so that there's just such a big difference in time between those two things, and it's something uh, something we're experimenting with to see if it fits our company um, as, as we evolve over time. Well, it does sound like in a little bit, a little bit like a shift from a small business person into a little bit more of a corporation. A little bit, yeah. And hope, I'm hoping that I can still retain the feel of the small business while I make that shift. I understand. I mean, I, I in fact, I think the cliche runs that, you know, as soon as we start using, I don't know, corporation, it sounds big and evil and people are no longer your fans. But at least that's not how I've ever regarded it. I think that if you love what you do and you feel you have a strong purpose in calling, you want it to be as big as you can and reach as many people. But certainly, uh, sometimes you can't uh, answer everybody's email personally or send out um, shipping just yourself as things scale. So, um, retaining some sanity at the same time some personal touch is critical. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, what's our final lesson? You know, there's there's so much we could we could talk about. I know about, it's one, it's absurd yeah. that I'm saying four and three, but you know, it gives us a framework. Let's roll with it. Right. Well, one that came to mind that that just uh, that I am very appreciative of, and my my company probably would not exist without it, is that very early on in the process, I was playtesting Viticulture, and testing the game, making sure it was balanced and that it worked, with friends. And one of those friends came to me and said, "Hey, I love what you're doing. I'd love to be a part of it." And we ended up becoming business partners. And that partnership, um, even though I I own most of the company, I do most of the the daily work. I'm I'm the only full time employee of Stillmeyer Games, mm-hmm. but having my friend Alan um, as a partner and as my co founder has been just foundational for me to to do everything that I've done. And so I, I hear a lot of stories from people who go at it alone, and I love that they have the passion and the drive to go at it alone. Um, but sometimes it fizzles out because they don't have someone to push them, someone to give them the blunt feedback they need, or someone to be there when they, they need they just need anything. And so I'm just I'm so appreciative of that and and I'd recommend it to, to anyone who's who's starting the business. Hmm. Even if the the duties are, are very imbalanced as they are in my company. 
Well, such a great point. Um, and this is why we're talking about Stonemeyer games, not Stegmeyer games, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's Alan Stone as my business partner, yes. and I'm Jamie Stegmeyer, yeah. And, he, and here again, obviously, I see a parallel because my brother and I, quite by mistake, actually started a company together with a, a third pal um, 23 years ago. But um, yeah, okay. that, that partnership, um, you wouldn't give it away for anything. It's so incredibly valuable. Sometimes it can be hard as well. And um, you know, you don't always see eye to eye with each other, whether you're business partners or brothers or just friends. Um, but I mean, it's I, I completely empathize and um, and reassert along with you. Uh, it sounds like that's been a huge part of your success, and I know it'll con- that that same attitude will continue to propel you higher. So let's let me close by asking the proverbial, "What's next?" What's next? Well, for, for someone who runs a game company, usually the thing that's next is another game. So I'm, <laughs> I'm designing another game. It's called Charterstone. Um, but also, the nice thing about running a board game company is that if I have successful games out there, people are actively playing them and buying them, then I can just reprint existing games. And so you that's bet. a big part of my practice, too. Um, reprinting games that we already make so that more people can experience them. Well, Jamie Stegmaier, thank you very much for graciously spending some of your time with Rule Breakers listeners this week. We wish you the very best. It's remarkable to talk to a guy whose first Kickstarter drew in $305 and then it went to about 65 k 300 k 400 k and then $1.8 million. But at a certain point, it might start sound, seeming like just too much pressure to keep amping it up. And so, uh, being able to just sell through to distributors based on the tremendous success you've had makes a lot of sense to me. Jamie, thank you so much for joining with The Motley Fool. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Well, what a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that, well, at least half as much as I did. Okay, so looking ahead this month, in two weeks, I'm really excited, I mentioned this a few podcasts ago, to bring in David Allen of Getting Things Done fame, the very successful productivity author and entrepreneur David Allen. I'm a big David Allen fan. I've gotten to know him some over the years. So, David will be here to share lessons about time management, but also lessons about business and entrepreneurship. Uh, next week, though, is an open slot right now. So here, here I'm, so I'm throwing this out your way. If there's an entrepreneur that you know or that you think that we know that you think would be great on Rule Breaker Investing, tweet it out. Um, if we get some good ideas, we'll try to turn them right around and see if we can bring in who you have in mind that you'd like to hear on Rule Breaker Investing next week. Absent that plan B, I'll be happy to share my own lessons and reflections on entrepreneurship. So, let's see what happens next week. In the meantime, fool on! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 